Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith, and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Kara Meister. In this episode, we'll be discussing branchial cleft anomalies. Thanks for being here, Dr. Meister. Thanks for having me, Alyssa. This is great. So before we dive into patient presentation, which is what we usually start with, I think for this particular topic, it might be best to first review normal development of the branchial apparatus. So can we review normal development as well as the structures that are formed from each of these? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I think that it's probably um, a great idea for all the listeners to to draw this out on your own and come up with some way to remember it because it tends to show up on all of our exams. Um, And I remember learning it every year and then forgetting it and relearning it. And um, I think once you start doing these cases, it makes a lot more sense. But you know, most of this is formed even before uh, many people know that they're expecting a baby. And so there are six uh, paired branchial apparatus. They appear in the fourth week of life. Um, each apparatus has an arch, a cleft, and a pouch. So clefts are part of the ectoderm, pouches are part of the endoderm, and arches are mesoderm and the neural cleft cells. Pouches become glandular or tissue that's associated with the air digestive tract. And then derivatives of arches become muscle, bone, or other um, mesodermal elements. Okay, so that's the global view. (laughs) Um, So the first arch, uh, the first brachial apparatus has an arch, a pouch, and a cleft. So the arch is going to give off cranial nerve 5, the maxillary artery, Uh, the malleus, the incus, Meckel's cartilage, the muscles of mastication, which makes sense because that's supplied by cranial nerve 5, the tensor tympani, the TVP, the mylohyoid, and the anterior belly of the digaster. The pouch becomes the middle ear in the eustachian tube, and the cleft is interesting. So it's the only cleft that does not obliterate. It forms the EAC and the outer layer of the tympanic membrane. Okay, so that's number one. So think about that area of the body and put your mental mental map on. Uh, Moving down, the second apparatus, brachial apparatus, the arch becomes cranial nerve 7. It gives off the stapedial artery, the manubrium of the malleus, the lenticular process of the incus, the stapes, the lesser horn of the hyoid because, you know, it has to have two. Uh, the facial um, muscles and the stapedius, stylohyoid, um, and the posterior belly of the digastrict. The pouch becomes the tonsillar fossa and the crypts of the palatine tonsils. So think about those areas. Uh, so we're really thinking about cranial nerve 7, the face, and the tonsils. Okay. The third brachial apparatus, the arch, uh, becomes cranial nerve 9. Uh, the common and internal carotids, and then the greater greater horn of the hyoid, and along with the stylopharyngeus. The pouch gives off the inferior parathyroids and the thymus. The fourth brachial apparatus, the arch, gives off the superior laryngeal nerve, um, part obviously of the vagus, the aortic arch, the subclavian artery, the cricothyroid 
the muscles of the pharynx and the soft palate, and the thyroid cartilage. The pouch becomes the superior parathyroid glands in the C-cells of the thyroid. So remember that the third pouch becomes the inferior parathyroids. The fourth pouch becomes the superior parathyroids. Um, the fifth brachial apparatus is supposed to go away, although um, after having worked in a lot of children with congenital heart disease, I think that doesn't always happen. But for these purposes, think about the fifth as kind of disappearing. The sixth brachial apparatus, so the arch, becomes the recurrent laryngeal nerve of the vagus. The pulmonary arteries, the ductus arteriosus, the intrinsic muscles of the larynx, and the arytenoid and cricoid cartilage. The pouch obliterates. And, you know, if you think about all of these areas, and if you think if there's a problem in one of them, it's easy to, to remind yourself of what else to look for. And so the thing that happens in development that leads to an anomaly is something doesn't always obliterate uh, during embryogenesis. Um, and then the first brachial cleft is the only cleft that doesn't normally obliterate, just to reiterate that. So when we're thinking about the various anomalies that can form, I know we can get a cyst, we can get a sinus, we can get a fistula. How do we define each of these anomalies? Yeah, so this is uh, super important um, for our ability to communicate with one another and our ability to kind of understand the, the embryology and how that relates to the pathophysiology. So a cyst is completely encapsulated, meaning that there's no communication with an internal or external surface. The fistula means that it communicates with both the internal and external surface, so it's really a conduit. A sinus communicates with a single surface, either the skin, potentially the pharynx. Um, a cystic dilation can occur either in a fistula or a sinus, but the difference is that in a simple cyst where there's no other communication, your management is really just about removing that cyst. But if you fail to recognize that it's actually a part of a fistula or a sinus, and you don't manage those communications, the cyst will come back. Um, and so you have to make sure that what you are seeing is not a cystic dilation of a fistula or a sinus and really take care of the, the root of the problem, which is the communication. And so when we're addressing things that are a fistula or a sinus, I think it's important that we have in mind the normal track that these uh, will follow. So what is the typical anatomy for each of these tracks? Yeah, so in general, the tract is going to course inferior to the anatomic derivatives of its associated arch and superior to the derivatives of the next arch. We can think about it with each type of anomaly. So the first brachial cleft arch anomalies, they get two. They're called work type one and work type two. So type 1 is essentially a duplication of the ectodermal um, external auditory canal. And type 2 is a duplication of both the ectodermal as well as the mesodermal elements of the, the EAC. The second really is all about the tonsillar fossa. So the anomaly will penetrate the middle pharyngeal constrictor 
it'll run inferior to cranial nerve 7 and superior to 9 and to uh, 9 and 11. It splits, goes in between the internal and external carotid, and ends up anterior to the SCM. The thirds, we're moving a little bit further down the neck, are really all about the piriform sinus. So they're going to pierce the thyrohyoid membrane, they're going to go inferior to cranial nerve 9 and superior to, to the SLN and uh, cranial nerve 12, and then they are going to run posterior to the carotid sheath. They will also end up anterior most often to the SEM. Fourths are uh, interesting. They have a similar course to third, although they pass inferior to the SLN and superior to the RLN, the recurrent. So they go inferior to the superior laryngeal nerve and superior to the recurrent laryngeal nerve because that's really confusing. <laughs> they um, will often uh, also end up anterior to the SCM and sometimes in uh, the lobe of the thyroid itself. And so then now that we have our normal anatomy in mind, um, let's move on to presentation. So what signs or symptoms do these patients typically present with? Yeah, so it really depends on which anatomic structure um, is the derivative, right? And so the first anomalies can present with either recurrent inflammatory lesions of the external auditory canal, um, periauricular infections, draining skin pits, persistent otorrhea, actually, with, uh, without a otitis media or cholesteatoma history, um, cervical neck masses superior to the hyoid bone can be first first arch problems, um, but really we clinically think about the ear. They can also involve the parotid gland, and even though we think about the first arch as being cradial nerve five. We are cognizant of cranial nerve 7 during the dissection because it's in close proximity. And so it's often nice to kind of think about not only where the arch is from, is, is from but what is in the field. Second arch anomalies, these are most common. So um, they are actually responsible for up to 90% of brachial cleft anomalies. They present as a lateral neck mass anterior to the SEM, they will swell or become enlarged, inflamed, even infected, um, often in the setting of upper respiratory infections. And it's easy to remember that because, you know, when we are sick, our tonsils hurt, everything is swollen, we have a lot of inflammation in our mouth, maybe we're dehydrated, so we have more bugs in our mouth, and then they get into this sinus and will make that cystic dilation larger. Similarly, um, third brachial cleft anomalies um, will present in an, a similar location. Um, they can have a close relationship to the thyroid gland, um, and they can, you can actually sometimes see those piriform uh, connections. They tend to be left-sided. Um, there's some debate in the literature on a third brachial cleft anomaly versus a fourth. Some people say that fourths end up in the thyroid and thirds don't. It's a little bit of uh, semantics, but um, it's, it doesn't matter so much in practice. 
except to say that you should look at the piriforms themselves um, and see if you can find that tract. And then how common are these anomalies? Yeah, so um, they're they're pretty common in, in general. So they're the second most common congenital neck mass. Um, about 20% of congenital neck masses are, are made up of brachial cleft anomalies. Does anyone know what the, the most common is? It's similar in its origin, and it's the thyroglossal duct. Yeah, great. Excellent. All right. So if a patient does present with a lateral neck mass, what are some other things that we should be having on our differential to rule out? Yes, of course. And some of these are, um, you you know, it depends on how you want to think about your differential, right? And so you, as, as part of our training, most people become very comfortable with one way of thinking about a differential diagnosis. So um, some people use kittens, some people use Vindicate, some people will think about, you know, anatomic, what's superior, uh, middle, middle, inferior in anatomic um, structures. Um, I sometimes will think about things in a good, bad, and ugly, right, type of classification system. So whatever strikes your fancy as far as how to approach a differential, you should have one for pediatric neck mass. The lateral neck masses are often um, most common uh, adenitis, so cervical lymphadenitis, either viral or bacterial. Um, Along those same lines, atypical mycobacterium, uh, lymphatic vascular malformations, hemangiomas, uh, brachial clepsis, which we're talking about now, teratomas, uh, dermoid or epidermoid cyst, uh, laryngocele,s lymphomas, metastatic nodes, uh, congenital torticollis in a young child, and thyroglossal duct cyst. We could go on and on, but those are probably the most common. And so keeping those in mind, what are some questions that we can ask parents or even the patient to help really define the correct diagnosis? Yeah, so the kind of overall approach should um, think about recurrence, right? So is this the first time that this happened? Has it uh, come been gradually getting larger over time? Does it wax and wane? So a lot of times these anomalies will flare up when the child is sick and then go back down. Or for your first arch, they'll flare intermittently, especially um, once children are putting their fingers in their mouth and then their fingers all over their faces um, or their finger in their nose and then their finger on their ear. So those can have a waxing and waning course. Um, The the other thing is to ask questions that rule out other things, right? Um, so if it's a, um, a teratoma or a dermoid cyst, it's not going to go down. It's going to stay persistently large. So it's really about timing and um, whether it's been an acute or a chronic or a recurrent uh, type of problem. Sometimes we can... Um, tell based on a child's symptoms. So every time he gets a tonsil infection, this neck mass pops up. That's pretty classic for a, for a type 2 brachial cleft cyst. Um, I have had a baby that had a type 3, and every time she sucked breast milk, her neck would swell up, and then mom would squeeze it down. Um, and so sometimes in the history, you can, you can, you can find out. 
And then how about some key physical exam findings? Yeah, so it's important to know kind of what is the status of this, right? So you want to be able to to rule out really bad things in your differential. So if there are cranial neuropathies, so if the child has a, a neck mass and a weak face, that is most likely not a brachial cleft cyst. Then you need to be thinking about like malignant submandibular problems and, and things like that. Um, so just as one of the most important things in looking at the exam is to think about what are the bad things that I could be missing and not assume that it's this. Okay, so that aside, um, location will help you know where it is. You want to know if it's acutely inflamed. Um, we don't tend to like to intervene when these are um, hot or really inflamed because of um, scarring and, and just difficulty with the dissection and spilling any um, bacteria that can lead to worse inflammatory response. You know, the other question is you want to make sure that um, that it's not so inflamed that the child is um, unstable. So you want to make sure that they can still protect their airway, they can move their head, um, and that they're not um, septic from overwhelming neck infection. And then are there any associated syndromes that we should be aware of? Yeah. So um, brachial otorenal is probably the one that first comes to mind. So um, you'll often see bilateral cleft anomalies, and they may not be the same anomaly. So for example, on the right, they may have preauricular pits and an ossicular fixation. And on the left, they may have what looks to be like a, a sinus in the sinus tract in the level of level where you would expect a level two brachial cleft anomaly to be. But certainly if you are seeing multiple or bilateral cleft anomalies, it's important to think about this. Um, I tend to get a um, renal ultrasound because it's um, low risk, low cost, and can have strong intervention, strong um, um, positive findings um, that you don't want to miss, and a hearing test in children that have more than one brachial anomaly. Um, first arch anomalies are associated with Treacher Collins, Pierre Robin, Golden Har, and DeGeorge. And then is there any role for radiology when it comes to either diagnosis or preoperative planning? Yeah, absolutely. So um, really the role for radiology is um, diagnostic. You can... Uh, often tell if you're looking at a brachial cleft cyst versus a lymphatic malformation, not always, but occasionally, certainly versus a dermoid. Um, I often will get an MRI in young children. Um, CT I usually reserve for older children just to um, um, decrease their radiation exposure. Um, occasionally I'll get both in, in certain circumstances. Um, when we're thinking about first arch, um, it's important to con kind of plan your um, surgical approach and consider whether or not um, the facial nerve is at risk. And if, if you really, if you're even considerate, you should just get the MRI um, because the course of the facial nerve can be unpredictable because of your, um, your first arch abnormalities. So even though it's not the nerve of the first arch, it can be affected in that and an MRI is a great way to see it. So let's move on to treatment. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about treatment approaches, is there any role for more conservative or non-surgical treatment? 
Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting thought, Alyssa. Um, I um, tend to try to wait until these children um, push push me into operating on them. So especially in your infants that present with a slightly enlarged, what you expect to be brachial cleft, uh, type 2 brachial cleft, I will wait until they either have an infection or have um, have shown that it's getting larger. Um, once, a, once the kid is a little bit bigger, um, you have a little bit more real estate to work with, and I think surgery is uh, sometimes safer. Um, there is some um, literature on doing sclerotherapy for these. Um, if there's a question between a lymphatic malformation, so like a macrocystic lymphatic malformation versus a brachial cleft cyst, the aspirate can often tell you if there's epithelial lining as a part of that, um, that cystic fluid, which would point you more towards a brachial cleft cyst. I have seen a handful um, become obliterated after sclerotherapy. I've also seen a handful become obliterated after a raging infection. Um, so certainly there, uh, there can be a role for, for watchful waiting. It's important to recognize that you would not do watchful waiting for um, a child who is having airway distress or is ending up in the hospital every time that it gets infected. So a little bit is clinical judgment, um, but just because it's there doesn't always mean you have to cut it out. And then you mentioned previously that if uh, it's in acutely infected that you wouldn't take it to the operating room at that moment. What does your antibiotic regimen look like and how long do you wait before proceeding to surgery? Yeah, so again, it kind of depends on what the origin is and if our preauricular kind of pits and sinuses in that area, I like to, to treat with antibiotics. I also like to put um, uh, Bactroban or Mupirocin in the child's nose because oftentimes they're self-inoculating um, with that. So that's one little trick. Um, your, your type 2s and type 3s, you want to cover um, oropharyngeal flora. Um, for those. And oftentimes, um, the, the, if it's not acutely infected, if it's just swollen, um, it can be viral related. And um, I, I do tend to treat them because we don't want uh, infected neck mass with antibiotics. But I've certainly had patients that, that have come in and said, oh yeah, it was super swollen and red for about three days and then it went down. Um, so we know that there must be some element of, of, um, of our body's natural ability to fight these off, especially if, it's, if the um, inflammation is viral in origin. And then what does your surgical approach do look like for patients that have to go to the operating room? Yeah, so for um, preauricular lesions, kind of one thing that I feel strongly about is you should find the base of that. And it's often right um, in the um, that kind of uh, tracheal cartilage area. And I, I do think that, you know, the literature is pretty convincing that taking a piece of, of that tracheal cartilage gets a better um, a decreased risk of recurrence. And so um, one trick that I learned when I was a resident from Amanda Stapleton, um, who's a pediatric otolaryngologist in Pittsburgh, is to mix um, methylene blue with bacitracin. So you kind of make this thicker slurry, inject that into your, um, into your tract, and it beautifully outlines kind of that um, cyst where we're right at the level of the cartilage. Um, so I like to take an ellipse and, 
and kind of take it out on block. Um, so that's one trick for, um, for around the ear. Um, in type two and what, I, what maybe a type two or type three, um, and occasionally I've done one type four um, where I, I tend to look for the tract either in the tonsillar fossa um, or um, especially if it's in the piriform. If you can see the tract in the piriform, um, you can obliterate that tract. My preferred technique is um, bug B cautery on a low setting, um, followed by a figure of eight um, suture. Um, I don't really like the, the um, surgical glues there because I worry about the child aspirating it. Um, and you have to be cognizant of your bug B not being turned up um, too high because there's a risk of um, damaging their current laryngeal nerve. Um, but I have um, on several occasions um, taken care of the tract and then just had my interventional radiology colleagues uh, come in and drain the cyst, and then usually it will ob obliterate on its own. Um, the, the cyst in the thyroid themselves, um, they're usually too inflamed, and those children will often need a um, thyroid lobectomy because kind of the, um, the cyst has been accumulating with all of that oropharyngeal um, schmutz. And so there's some case reports of like finding vegetable matter in the, in the type three and type four cysts. So um, you have to follow these children and make sure that it's not still a nidus of infection in and of itself. And then when you're looking for the potential internal opening, either at the tonsillar fossa or the piriform sinus, do you do this at the beginning of the case after you've excised the cistern tract? Yeah, so I do it at the beginning um, because it, um, if you can find that the tract uh, in the piriform and control it that way, you save the child from a big excision of the mass potentially. Um, and it also, if you can find where the tract is, um, it can help you determine if it's a type two or a type three, four. Um, and so I always start with that at the beginning. And um, uh, usually if the child has not had a tonsillectomy, it's really hard to find the tonsillar tract. I do not routinely do a tonsillectomy in that setting. Um, I'll just take take the cyst out um, itself. And then if it, it continues to recur, I counsel the family about uh, tonsillectomy there. And so what are some common complications that residents should be aware of when we're managing these patients postoperatively? Yeah, so again, it goes back to um, which type we're talking about, and it's really just about the real estate in that area. Um, each can each instrument that we use also can have complications, like the Bugby cartery can can cause um, nerve damage from, you know, just heat and and thermal damage. Um, but uh, those are those are kind of the things. It's all just dependent on the um, specific uh, anatomic region. And then how do you counsel parents about the risks of surgery? Um, that's a great question. It's all about, as so many things are, setting expectations. And so I try to give them a realistic view of the chance of success with a single surgery. Just let them know that there's always a possibility that these can come back. Um, so I think knowing that up front is, is super helpful. I tend to um, really harp on that a little bit more with our glossal duct cyst um, and especially to consider some of the potential for swallow 
follow dysfunction in that operation, but the same goes for, for brachial clepsis, that um, there is a, a very small but real chance of, of recurrence and that there may need to be another approach to get at either the, the fistula or the, or the sinus itself. Do you give parents any number about the risk of recurrence? Um, not usually because every kid is different. And one thing that, um, that's kind of true is parents always think that their child will be, um, the one that does great. So, um, I usually don't give them too many numbers. Of course, if they ask for it specifically, then I would give it to them. But And then how about long-term follow-up? What does the follow-up schedule look like for these patients? Yeah, so I like to see them in a clinic for a wound check somewhere um, in that first uh, week postoperatively to make sure they're healing okay and that their pain is under control, they're not having any problems. Um, And then I like to see them again at three months um, just to make sure, again, that healing is is okay. but I don't tend to follow them long-term with the exception um, of children who I excised a tract and left the cyst in there. So um, for example, I have um, a a patient that I dipped uh, a few weeks ago who had a type um, type three for the very obvious piriform uh, tract and um, a huge thyroid mass. So you always have to have that in the back of your mind that am I missing a thyroid mass or am I just assuming that it is all related to this brachial cleft cyst, right? And so I want to follow that child and make sure that he gets better. Um, like we talked about in the in the other episode, never never trust a baby or a kid, and just you know we think about in pediatrics that most things are one disease, right? But they can all then fool you, and so you want to make sure that the swelling in the neck goes down after you do your brachial cleft excision, and that you didn't miss um, a more sinister pathology. And then finally, thinking about the natural history of this process, what if no treatment is pursued? What happens to these kids? Can it resolve on its own? Yeah. So interestingly, sometimes it can. So sometimes, um, just like a thyroglossal duct cyst, that fistula, I think for for reasons of um, just becoming so inflamed, either from an infection or an injury otherwise, they can kind of scar themselves off. Um, That's a win for everyone. Um, And I certainly tell parents, that we don't have any data that shows us or that can inform us to how often that happens um, just because of the nature of data collection. But I, I do certainly think that it's, it's possible. If a child's having recurrent infections, I will um, recommend surgical excision. Um, but I've seen those handful of patients where, where it just kind of burns out on its own. All right. Awesome. So in summary, branchial apparati are made of clefts, which are ectoderm, pouches, which are endoderm, arches, which are mesoderm, and neural cleft cells. The derivatives of pouches will become glandular or associated with the aerodigestive tract, whereas derivatives of the arches will become muscle, bone, or other mesodermal structures. Branchial cleft anomalies are due to incomplete obliteration of the branchial cleft during embryogenesis. The first branchial cleft is the only cleft that does not normally obliterate. Anomalies can include a cyst, a sinus, or even a fistula. Patients can present with a variety of symptoms depending on which branchial cleft is involved. However, patients with two through four branchial clefts will typically present with a lateral neck mass. Second branchial clefts are the most common. 
conservative management is preferred if the patient is extremely young to allow them to develop um, and have more favorable anatomy for surgery. Sclerotherapy or acute infections can sometimes lead to obliteration and surgery can be avoided. However, when surgery is performed, uh, excision should include tracing of the tract, uh, which can originate in the tonsillar fossa or the piriform sinus, depending on uh, the branchial cleft that's involved. Dr. Meister, thanks again for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, Alyssa, thanks. This has been uh, really great. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. It's um, an interesting time to think about how much the anatomy and the embryology actually can influence what we see um, surgically. And that, that to me is really fascinating. Um, if anyone ever has questions, my email is fully discoverable online. It's just my last name and then the number four. So Meister, just like Jaegermeister, M-E-I-S-T er the number four at stanford.edu awesome so i'll now move on to the question portion of the podcast as a reminder i will ask a question pause for a few seconds and then give the answer the first question is how does the brinchial tract course in relation to its derivatives the tract will course inferior to the anatomic derivatives of its associated arch and then superior to the derivatives of the next arch. The second question is, what are the internal openings seen for two through four branchial anomalies? So if an internal opening is present, it will be in the tonsillar fossa for a second branchial cleft anomaly, and then in the piriform sinus and three and four branchial cleft anomalies. And then finally, what syndrome is commonly associated with bilateral branchial cleft anomalies? So the syndrome that we should be thinking about is branchio-otorenal syndrome, also known as BOR syndrome. And this presents with preauricular pits, middle ear deformities such as ocular chain fixation, some inner ear deformities, as well as renal anomalies. So it's important to get a renal ultrasound as well as a hearing test for these patients. And that's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining.